First Corinthians chapter 10, you all know that the stories in the Old Testament are largely about Israel. And Paul is talking about Israel, 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 11 as he talks to us about the value of studying the Old Testament. He says, now, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happened to them, that's Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, in light of this truth, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and common to Israel as well in this context. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 14. This is the value of studying the entire Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as we move into chapter 14, let me just give you a few highlights of what's occurred so far. Abram's been given this incredible promise in Genesis 12. God has promised to bless him. He says, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And Abram, who will become Abraham, is walking in the promises. And he has a little blunder. When he goes down to Egypt, he tells a half lie about his wife. There's a famine in the land. And he, he's basically escorted to the border of Egypt and he goes back into the land of Canaan and he revisits a place where he had set up an altar sometime before that. This is found in Genesis 13. If you look at verse four, it says, he came to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And we pointed out last time we were together that sometimes it's really good to revisit places where you set up altars. Altars have to do with worship. Maybe uh, really important turning points in your life. Uh, it could be a time. It could be a place. It could be a routine where you're really getting back to your Bible and you decided to make your Bible and prayer and worship a priority. That's always something that we should get back to. And then um, there's this whole disagreement between Lot and the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram and they split. And Abram gives Lot the option and Lot looks over to the Jordan Valley and it's green and it looks lovely and he chooses that and Lot made a very poor decision. He should have deferred to Uncle Abram, but he didn't. And Lot took off with all that he had and Abram went in the other direction and God had him walk the land and Abram literally went on walkabout. Do you remember that? So that whole Australian thing comes from the Bible as well. And God told him, every step that you take is yours. Every time you step, and you take a, uh, another step in my promises, that's yours, that's yours, that's yours. And God said, look everywhere, look in every direction. It all belongs to you. Even what you think you gave away is yours. This is the beauty of the promises of God. And the chapter ends in these words. Abram, this is 13, 18, moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there, notice the chapter ends that he built an altar, another altar to the Lord. An altar is a place of worship. This leads us into the battle and the blessings, Genesis 14. And it came about in these days, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Now you're going to see a lot of challenging names that uh, you could read along with me and you can critique my pronunciation of them. 
There is a secret. I'll let you in on a secret. If you go to Blue Letter Bible, there's an audio option on Blue Letter Bible. And if you're in a chapter and you're teaching a Bible study and you read some names and you're like, I have absolutely no clue how to pronounce that, go to Blue Letter Bible, click on, I want to listen to the Bible, and you'll hear an announcer in a very slow and deep voice say, King Chedorlaomer. <laughs> now, I did do some historical research on Chedorlaomer, and I found out that this is the origin of cheddar cheese and what? <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. It's really not. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but here's these kings. So the Bible's narrative takes us from Abram's altar to a time of war, from worship to war. And I pointed out two altars in Genesis chapter 13, and all of a sudden we're going to have the first, uh, the first um, record that I know of of a war in history, where there was act actually military maneuvering and uh, battle. And this is early. This is Genesis 14. And it, and it seems like you know, when you think about how life goes, it, it feels like sometimes you're at that altar and worship's going really well and things are going cool in your life and then a battle emerges. And we are in a battle. You all know we're in a spiritual battle. It's recorded in Ephesians chapter six. Um, I've written a book on this. It's called Suit Up, Put On the Full Armor of God. And after about 25 <laughs> revisions and whatever, it's gonna come out soon. And I'm hoping that's gonna be a blessing to you. But we're in a spiritual battle, and we want to be people of worship, but we find the world, the flesh, the devil, all these things war against our souls. Even our own desires sometimes come up and bite us. And these kings mentioned in verse 1 are an international coalition of four eastern kings. Just, just in summary, they are from the area of the Euphrates River, and they are headed by this uh, Chedorlaomer character, and they... they uh, are about around in Abram's day. And in Abram's day, regular raids apparently were conducted. And what people groups started to do in these early days is they started to try to take over territory. And if they dominated a city-state area, they would basically put in a vassal king or they would make that king of that area uh, uh, bidden to them or to pay tribute to them. And so, you know, if you, if you all, uh, when you study the Bible and you realize that when you study the days of Jesus that Israel's under Roman occupation, that's the parallel. These groups of kings or coalitions of kings would come into city-states or towns. They would dominate them. They would say, now you're going to pay us taxes or tribute, and we're over you. You may be the king of this town, but ultimately we're in charge. And this is how they did things. And so these eastern kings from the Euphrates River area and Shinar is from the area of uh, modern-day or uh, modern-day Iraq or ancient Babylon or Mesopotamia. Uh, they they were on the attack, and so this is the days of these particular kings. They made war, look at verse two, with Bera, king of Sodom. That's the area where Lot had gone to, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, with Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, king of Zeboim. And the king, who's unnamed here, of Bela, that is Zoar. So you've got five kings that are listed there. And these areas, you can uh, check on your study Bibles, but the, you have kings from the, the eastern region and kings from the, what's called the Transjordan area. All these came as allies to the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, 
When you see the salt sea, sometimes it may be rendered the dead sea. The Jews call the dead sea the sea of salt. They don't call it the dead sea because the sea of salt is not dead. It actually has fish in it and it has about a 34% mineral content. And if you walk into the sea of salt, it's pretty interesting in Israel, in southern Israel, because the sea of salt has such heavy mineral content that it looks like a normal ocean from a distance. But if you go, if you walk in there, it feels totally slimy and yucky. And if you lay down and if you got a newspaper and you just lay down in the salt sea, you will float. You don't need those little, you know, dealy bobs that you put on the kids or you don't even need a raft. You will actually float on the sea of salt. And they have what's called dead sea products that they ship all over the world now. And the ladies like to put it on their face. And they say, and it doesn't make you dead, by the way, <laughs> but here's what happens. So, so if you put this on you, it's supposed to make your skin like baby skin. And if you stay in the sea of salt for about 15 minutes, you will come out and you will have marvelous skin. The problem with the sea of salt is if you stay in there too long, and I'm speaking literally now, it will suck the life out of you completely. And it's down in this area where all of this stuff is happening. And the marker or the location geographically is the, for this Valley of Siddim is the Sea of Salt. There are some who say the Valley of Siddim ties um, to the Valley of the Kings. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. So all these came as allies. So the guys that were being attacked got together and they're, they're in the southern part of the state, if you will, or the, the country. And they decided, you know what? We're tired of being bullied. We're tired of these, these kings from the east messing with us. Twelve years for they had served uh, the guy who made the cheddar cheese, Cheddar Leomer. But the 13th year, they rebelled. And their rebellion was probably something like this. We're not going to send them tribute or taxes anymore. So these, these kings that dominated these areas were basically... A threat of war loomed over you, but they didn't necessarily hang out or have headquarters in your town, but they would get the message if you stopped sending the money. And so finally, these guys got together, these kings, and they said, we're not going to send tribute anymore. And they knew what that meant. What that meant was we're waiting for an attack because sooner or later, troops are going to come because we're not paying the money anymore and there's going to be war. And so this is what occurred in the 13th year. They dealt with it. They served this king for 12, and they had had enough. And in the 14th year, here's the attack. Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Carmain and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emmim in Shaveh Karathaim and the Horites in, uh, in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites. They did not exist at this time, but they existed when Moses was writing. And also the Amorites, which became the Canaanites, who lived in Hazazon Tamar, verse 8. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim. Against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elessar, four kings against five. So the bell's about to ring, it's time for war. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply, 
and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. For he, Lot, was living in Sodom. And this is largely why the story is told because of what's happening to Lot. And Abram will be about, is about to be involved. Now, some of you may be reading your Bible right now and you might be thinking, do these places really exist? Cheddar Leomer and, you know, Zeboim and these weird names. Did somebody just come up with this stuff or is this really real? Did it really happen? The higher critics of the 19th century said that the history in Genesis of Abram and other patriarchs was pure mythology. But in the 20th century, much written material was discovered from Ur, Babylon, Nutsi, Mari, Alala, Ugarit, and Bog Hazakoi that contained laws, customs, religious practices, names, and social settings already known to us from the book of Genesis. Of special relevance to Genesis 14 are the recent finds of Tel Mardik in Syria, the site of ancient Ebla. Between 1974 and 19, uh, I think it's 77 or 76, approximately 20,000 cuneiform tablets were discovered among the remains of the ancient metropolis. Listen to this. A number of these had at least an indirect bearing on biblical history. In that, uh, in that early biblical names were discovered such as Jehovah, Abram, Esau, David, Saul, Michael, and Israel. They occur in abundance. Moreover, there were place names among these tablets, including possibly even the very cities mentioned in Genesis 14. One of the early examiners of the Ebla tablets, Giovanni uh, Petanato, sounds like an Italian guy, claimed that all five towns, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Bela, or Zoar, are mentioned in the precise biblical order in the archaeological discoveries. The 19th century higher critics said these places don't exist, they're mythology, and then archaeology dug them up and said, Ah, Mr. Skeptic, this is historical. This is archaeological. This is evidence. And then the skeptics just go on to the next thing they're going to criticize. Nelson Gluick, a leading archaeologist of this area of the Middle East, of uh, the world, investigated this area thoroughly. He reported these words. This is his own words, and I don't believe he was a Christian. He said, quote, I found that every village in their path of the four eastern kings had been plundered and left in ruins. The countryside laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkempt, with all its monuments shattered and strewn pieces on the ground, close quote. These kings of the East unleashed their fury and devastated many of these towns, and they're called tells today. And what happens with a tell is that cities were built upon cities and they're called tells. So what happens is you have to dig sometimes to find a city underneath a city in archaeology. So sometimes it's not evidence right on the top surface, if you will, but you start doing digs and you find that ancient cities and some of the, what they left behind are underneath existing cities. It's called a tell or a mount, if you will. And so they've dug up stuff like this over and over again. Nelson Gluck was famous to say that every time the spade of the, the shovel of the archaeologist turns over, they find another thing that proves the Bible and another thing that proves the Bible. In fact, he says of all that he discovered in the Middle East, he didn't find one archaeological discovery that controverted the biblical record, not one. 
and they found thousands and thousands and thousands of clay tablets and, and uh, writings and all of these buttress or support what the Bible teaches. And you can have confidence in your Bible. So here's what takes place now. And a fugitive, with these kings fleeing and these tar pits and all that's going on, a fugitive came. Some, some had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, the first place in the Bible, by the way, where he's called a Hebrew, now, he was living by the Oaks of Mamre, and, and Abram had to be well-known. He had many riches at this point, many servants. And he was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol, the brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. So Abram not only had a lot under his own possession, but he had allies as well. And a sole survivor you know, ran to the mountains and then f- tracked down Abram, the Hebrew, and shared with him what had occurred. And I'm sure he reported that your nephew Lot, I'm sure it was well known that there was a relationship between these two well-to-do men, has been taken. He has been kidnapped by these kings from the east who are devastating the land. What should a man of God do in such an instance as this? Your nephew's been taken captive. You know that you've got to respond in some way. What would you do? This brings up a question about should believers be involved in war? Is there a time to fight? Is there a time to fight a despot? Is there a time to fight someone who is killing a bunch of Christians? Is there a time for what has been sometimes called just war theory, that there's a time when the righteous must step up and do something and not just sit there? Abram could have come up with excuses. One could have been, maybe this is God's punishment on Lot. You know, I'm a spiritual man, Abram might say, and I've got my tents here and I'm good. These guys aren't attacking me. And after all, nephew Lot basically didn't defer to me and he was unspiritual and he, he didn't do things properly. Too bad. He could have done that. Or he could have said, you know what? I'm, I'm a man of God. I'm walking in the promises of God. I don't, I don't want to go to war. But Abram's going to respond. And in fact, he's going to be blessed for what he does. So with all that we would wrestle through, I think at least this needs to be considered in how we deal with these issues. When Abram heard that his relative, verse 14, had been taken captive, he led out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is the northern border of Israel. Scholars say that Abram went about 120 miles to pursue these kings and to try to track down his nephew. That's quite a commitment, 120 miles of travel to try to run down. And he had 318 trained men. In fact, uh, if you read commentaries on this, commentators will say that Abram had his own trained militia in his household. 318 trained men. Now, we need more trained men, but I'm not talking about just training in that sense. I'm talking about trained men. Amen? Amen. I'm talking about men who know how to battle spiritually. I'm talking about men who are good leaders of their households. I'm talking about men who say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need more of that. Would you agree? We do. Sometimes you talk to a lot of ladies who who their husbands are missing in action. They don't know how to battle in the ultimate sense. And so there was a pursuit, and he divided up his forces against them by night, verse 15. He and his servants... And defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, 
which is north of Damascus. And now we're moving into Syria, so maybe you know, several more miles now. And this is recorded as being north of Damascus. So the victory is won. Notice a stealth mission. It's by night. Abram and his servants, and they defeated them. I don't know how many people, but I'm sure they were probably outnumbered. And they put them on the run, and they pursued them, and defeated them, and the victory was won. This was Abram risking everything to save his nephew, Lot. What would you do for a family member? Are we our brother's keeper? Cain said of Abel that he wasn't. God said, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What have you done? Well, apparently Abram believed that he was the keeper of his nephew. And even though it wasn't always smooth with Lot, and there's going to be more problems with Lot, Abram went after him. Verse 16, he brought back all the goods, also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Notice the repetition of brought back. It almost reminds me of the idea of being redeemed. Redemption is to be bought back. He brought back all that was taken into captivity, all that would have been a terrible life and future and maybe even death. And I'm sure it was a joyous homecoming. Look at, there's the goods, there's the relative lot, there's the possessions, there's the women and the people. And I'm sure it was quite a caravan back from Syria, back into Israel and heading now down towards from the north, you know, in Galilee towards the holy city down in the south, which is the area of Jerusalem. And I'm sure they were dancing. I'm sure that they were rejoicing. I'm sure Abram felt pretty good, wouldn't you? A stealth mission at night, 318 of your trained men. You don't know for sure what's going to happen, but you take the risk, you're courageous, and you win the victory. And down you go, and all these people have to be so grateful And there's got to be a party as they're going down and everything's wonderful and all the people are rejoicing, patting Abram on the back. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, 17, the king of Sodom, now I don't know what happened to the king of Sodom. I don't know if he fell into the tar pits and escaped. I don't know if this could be another king. I don't know if he was taken captive and rescued. But the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is to meet Abram, at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. The king's valley, many people believe, is the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is a little valley that runs between the Mount of Olives and what's known as the Temple Mount. And it's not a very, very wide area. In fact, it's just a handful of steps to walk across parts of the Kidron But the Kidron Valley was known as the place where when they sacrificed in the area of the temple, the blood of the sacrifices ran into that valley. And it was also also known as a valley that was filled with blood. It's that Kidron Valley that Jesus crossed over into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is located on the kind of the base of the Mount of Olives, the night before he died. Did we add bells to the church? I didn't even know if we had done that. That's, that's awesome, though. That's <laughs> wonderful. Anyway, and so, but the, uh, in Psalm 23, it says, even though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So there's some connection here with the Kidron and the blood of the sacrifices and Jesus the night before he died going into the Mount of Olives. And here's where this whole thing occurs now. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abram 
at the Valley of Shava. This grateful king, and all of a sudden on the heels of a victory, on the heels of a, a beautiful, uh, a wonderful, courageous act, the king of Sodom all of a sudden approaches Abram. And Melchizedek, verse 18, king of Salem, so you have Sodom and Salem represented, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High in Hebrew, that's El Elyon. So here's Abram returning from this great victory, trust God, saves his nephew, all these people, and all of a sudden the king of Sodom comes up. Now the king of Sodom, we've already learned from Genesis 13 that Sodom's already this terribly wicked place. I'm sure the king is wicked as well. He rules over the place after all. And he's going to come and he's going to proposition Abram. What he's basically going to say to Abram is, there's a brochure here for Sodom. It's a wonderful place. It's very, very lush. And, and he's going to show him the travel brochure. How many of you, you know, you come off a, a great spiritual victory. You've trusted God. You've walked in the promises. You've been courageous. And all of a sudden, you get a strange visit from the king of Sodom. Boy, have I got a deal for you. And you're like, boy, I've never met you before. Oh, I know you. You see, here's what I'd like to offer you right now. And on the heels of spiritual victories and mountaintop experiences, we, you and I have to be prepared for a knock at the door from the king of Sodom. Sodom represents the world and all that's wicked. So the king of Sodom could represent Satan. And Satan often comes up and he offers things to us, you know, on the heels of great spiritual victories. When we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, you know, I'm sure Abram was rejoicing in God, but there would be a temptation to say, boy, weren't we brave. Wasn't that a cool plan we drew on the napkin? You go there. You go over there. We'll do it at night. Oh, it was awesome. Abram, oh, yeah. Wow. You're old, man, but boy, you were impressive. I saw you leap over a couple things and hit that dude. And whoa, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> little puffed up, king of Sodom walks up. Oh. Abram, man, you're the man, Abram, the man. We got a special spot for you. You see, this is how it works. And all of a sudden, this mysterious shadowy figure, first mentioned here in the Bible, his name is Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, king of Sodom. We know what Sodom is. The king of Salem, Salem is the ending of Jerusalem. And so there I think all biblical scholars that I've read would agree that Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem. And if you take Jerusalem and put it together, it's the city of peace or the city of God. Remember, we're, all, we're down in the south now, and this is kind of the region that we're dealing with. And the king of Sodom comes, and all of a sudden this king of Salem comes, and his name means king of peace. Peace, or literally, Hebrews 7 calls him the king of righteousness. And he begins to almost intercede for Abram. It's like he recognizes the moment. And Melchizedek walks up, and it seems like the priest of, or excuse me, the king of Sodom tables his, his pitch uh, as the Melchizedek king of Salem approaches. Notice Melchizedek king of Salem, what does he have? He brought out. Bread and wine. Now, he was not only a king, he was a priest of God 
Most High. And what he offers to Abram is very intriguing. He offers bread and wine at a crucial moment in Abram's life. Here comes this Melchizedek. And if you've studied this uh, topic at all, you know that there's many opinions on who Melchizedek is. Mysterious Melchizedek. How do you even say it? Melchizedek who? Melchizedek. And who is he? Well, some people say he's an angel because of the description in Hebrews 7. And some people say he's a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. And some people say, um, you know, maybe he's Shem. And, and maybe Shem's still around, but if he's Shem, why would he have no genealogy? Because Shem was the son of Noah. That doesn't make sense. And other people say, no, he is a human, but, but his genealogy is not put in the Bible. And this is kind of a rabbinic way of saying it's not recorded in the Bible. And so he, he's a type or a foreshadowing of Christ. And he's got the bread and wine and he's ready to intercede for Abram. And it's this beautiful picture of our intercessor and our great high priest who when the king of Sodom comes at us, he's ready to lend help in our time of need. Are you with me? This is mysterious Melchizedek, king of Salem. The writer of Hebrews says, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, Hebrews 5.11. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The writer of Hebrews, he basically rebukes the people of the Hebrew church in the first century, full of Jewish people, for not knowing about Melchizedek. He said, I'd like to tell you about the deeper picture here, about how it points to Christ, but you guys are not even ready Solid food is for the mature. There's a time to drink milk, and that's for baby Christians. But there's a time that you move on from the baby bottle. You know what I'm saying? There's a time to retire the bottle and have some steak. Everybody with me? Okay, it's an appropriate thing when a one or two-year-old is going on a bottle. And they go, go, I got to have my baba and all that. We understand that. But there was a time, I've told the story before, where the bottle has to be retired and you have to tell your child, the baba is going bye-bye. And they say, what? The baba. Yeah, baba is bye-bye. <laughs> time to move on to solid food, kid. Here's a steak. They're one, you know. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Don't do that. But we're talking about spiritual things here. And it's time for solid food. Solid food is for the mature. Sometimes, you know, I, I talk to people and they've been on a hunt for a church and they go from church to church and they say, uh, yeah, we've done the circuit and, and most places we've gone to, you don't even have to bring a Bible because they don't say open your Bible to something. It's just kind of, we make it easy for you. We're not going to do that. Solid foods for the mature. You want to grow? Then you need to get into God's word. And so Melchizedek blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And you're like, well, where'd this guy come from? I thought Abram was the only believer and the one true God around. Who's this guy in Canaan who's a priest king? And he knows the same God that Abram knows. This is pretty cool. Isn't it neat when you discover a brother or sister in Christ at your company? You're like, you're, you're a 
you? Yeah. Why didn't I know? We've been working together for 20 years. <laughs> That's always an issue. But anyway. And so Melchizedek is a worshiper. He blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high. He knows God's the one who made heaven and earth. And bread and wine foreshadow the greater priest king, the one who will rule and reign from Jerusalem, Jesus Christ. In fact, Psalm 110, written a thousand years later by David said, this is verses four and five, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at my right hand, at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Melchizedek, I believe, is a man, a priest king, who foreshadows Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He's a picture or a type. And Jesus Christ doesn't come from the Aaronic line. He doesn't come from the Levitical line. And a Jewish person might say, how can you call Jesus a high priest? He's not from the Aaronic line. He's not from Levi. Oh, but he's from a higher order. He's from the order of Melchizedek. And his priesthood is unalterable, he doesn't exchange it or pass it on to anybody, and it's eternal. In fact, Hebrews 7.25, write it down for your notes, which is kind of the conclusion of the Melchizedek treatment, says he ever lives to intercede for you. He has a perpetual priesthood, but he's also a king. And this is unique because in Israel, you couldn't be a king and a priest. Uzziah tried that in 2 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 26. He tried to go into the temple and burn incense, and God struck him with leprosy. He lived the rest of his days as a leper. You don't do that. The two offices were distinct, but in Jesus, he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and he's also our great high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, verse 15, he can sympathize. Hebrews 2, 18 talks about he gives help to the sons of Abram. Go back and read Hebrews 2, 16 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And this is the picture. He blessed Abram. And you can see in the picture that we have up there kind of what might capture this. Here's Here's Melchizedek, Abram bows. And when you bow for someone to bless you in the culture, it would be someone greater than you blessing the lesser. Patriarchs would bless their children and grandchildren on their deathbed. And it, it often had to do with a bow and you would bow. And the patriarch or the one who was giving the blessing would cover you with their hands, sometimes put their hands on you or on your head. And they would speak a blessing into your life. And all of a sudden, Abram, returning back from victory with the king of Sodom, chomping at his heels, has this, this intermediary, this mediator, shows up with bread and wine and gives him a blessing. It's almost as if the, the biblical picture is that, that Melchizedek inter, intercepted Satan or the king of Sodom and strengthened Abram to overcome a temptation. And here's how this all fits together with Hebrews. The Bible says... When we're tempted, and we're going to be, we have a great high priest who understands, been through it all, yet without sin, empathizes, sympathizes, and gives grace to us and dispenses grace from a throne of grace that we might find help and receive mercy in our time of need. And the Hebrew church, receiving the letter of Hebrews, was being beat up persecuted, under duress, wondering if they should go back to the temple and the Old Testament sacrifices. Can I make it? Should I give up? 
And they're told, no, you have a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And anybody who knew their Bible would go back to this story because this is where he appears. And they would say, ah, look what Melchizedek did for Abram, our forefather. With, with temptation looming, and here's the offer that is going to come from the king of Sodom. It's an offer of goods. Notice, here's what it says. The king of Sodom 21 said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, Abram has every right to take the spoils of war. After all, he's the victor. He won the battle. He took the risk. He won everything back. Why should he give it back? He's won all this stuff from Sodom, probably taking it back with uh, you know, animals and carts, and he's got all these riches now. Why would he ever return it? He's the one that risked everything. He had the trained fighters. He rescued Lot. He's the one that helped the king of Sodom. And the offer is on the table. I'm going I'm to give you the goods. You just give me the people. But when Melchizedek blessed Abram in verse 19, and then in verse 20, he, blessed, he said, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, Melchizedek reminds Abram that the battle and the victory is the Lord's. And he, Abram, what did he do? He gave, verse 20, he gave him a tenth of all. Do you hear, did Melchizedek ask for a tenth? Did he say, uh, before we do this blessing thing, I just want to make it clear, you need to be a tither. You don't get blessings without tithing. Have you heard this before? So you got to be a tither, and then I'll bless you. Just write your check now. Once we have that all settled, uh, I'd prefer a cashier's check if that's uh, okay with you. Make sure the fund's clear, and then, then we'll give you the blessing. No, 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 no. Abram gave, not because he, there's no law yet, there's no teaching on the tithe that comes later in the Bible. There's no Mosaic law. Moses isn't even born yet. No tithe. And yet, what does Abram do? Instead of buying into the king of Sodom's pitch, he gives instead of receiving. And Jesus said, it is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. You see, this is a key moment in the, in the forefather of our faith. We're all, by the way, in Abram because he's the father of those who are in the faith, Galatians 3. And we're supposed to follow in Abram's footsteps, which is what Romans 4 teaches. And all of a sudden in this key moment, do you see why we read the Old Testament? We need to know we have a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's alive. He lives right now. He has a ministry to us right now. And when the king of Sodom comes knocking, even after you've been on a high mountaintop experience, the king of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness is willing to help you if you will tap into his resources. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, there's been times when I've done that well and times when I've fallen on my face. There's been times when I've known all the theological truth that you need to know about these subjects, but that doesn't mean I didn't open the door to the king of Sodom. I'd like to tell you that every time I heard him knocking, I said, I hear you knocking, but you can't come in. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, but I haven't done that every time. Sometimes I've opened the door a little crack. Let's hear your pitch. Go ahead. Tell me. Yeah, slip the brochure through the door. Let's, let's hear about it. But when you learn that the king of Salem, your Melchizedek, in quotes, if you will, is ready to bring bread and wine and give you sustenance and cut off the devil's work at the pass, 
then you all of a sudden say, I don't, I don't give to be in the covenant. Look, the new covenant is, to be in the new covenant is not about tithing. Uh, I think we should consider a tithe, but not because we're forced to, but because we want to. Because we want to give because we've been so blessed. Because I want to give my first fruits to God. It's, it's the natural overflow of a heart in love with God. Just like evangelism, just like prayer, just like reading your Bible. They're all signs that you love God. And that you want to do things in response to his goodness in your life. Salem means peace, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And together, righteousness and peace meet at the person of Jesus Christ. They kiss together at the person of Christ. Write this down. Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus himself is our peace. And 1 John 2.1 says, calls Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that. Jesus the righteous. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? He's there for us. He knows what we go through. He knows when we have victories and we're a little bit more vulnerable. He knows when we're feeling weak and poured out. And all of a sudden, Melchizedek shows up, a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. And the king of Sodom makes his pitch to Abram. He says, give the people to me. Take the goods for yourself. 22, and Abram, Genesis 14, 22, said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, the same description that Melchizedek gave of God, Abram gives the same. He's El Elyon. He made heaven and earth. He possesses everything. Salem or Sodom, which is, which is it going to be? Abram had already made up his mind. Brothers and sisters, if you want to be more effective in the battle with your flesh, the world, lust, and the devil, you have to make up your mind ahead of time. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. Daniel 1, I think it's verse 8. He had already resolved. He would already made up his mind. He's probably a teenager who was raised in the law, and he's taken captive to Babylon, and the king puts the stuff before them, and they're going to try to convert them, and they're changing their names, and they want them to embrace all that is Babylonian. And Daniel says, nope, I will not defile myself. Give me vegetables and water. Let's see who looks better after 10 days. You guys know the story. You have to make up your mind. And somewhere along the line, maybe on the journey back, maybe God spoke to him, I don't know, but God said something like this, do not take a dime from that man. Temptation's coming. You're gonna, you're gonna get, someone's gonna come before you and they're gonna make a pitch and they're gonna say, this looks good. It looks great. You should do this. And God says, when that comes, don't you take a dime from him. Don't do it. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn, I made a covenant, this is heavy, to the Lord God, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Uh, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, if they want some of the stuff, let them take their share is the idea. But... Me, I'm not taking anything that's yours because all glory belongs to the Lord. This is the most powerful and poignant scene that is before us. Abram's just won the battle. He's got a decision between Sodom and Salem and he passes the test. 
Did he need more stuff? No. Did he, did he have to try to justify it in his mind? We, we do this, right? Well, it's a little shortcut. It's a little compromise of my values, but it'd be really nice if we could add this to our portfolio. And there's a voice saying, don't do it. In this world, we're going to have all these voices come in at us, and just, it's just a little compromise. You'll be fine. You can, you can do that. You can, you can work for them. You can cut corners. You can, you can lie. I mean, after all, you're saved by grace. <laughs> you ever done that before? Lord, I know you're going to forgive me for what I'm about to do. Oops. Paul says, don't use grace as an excuse for sin. He had this good feeling. He was confident. He had the right. He had won the battle. It was his, after all. Sodom represents the world, all that's wrong with it. It's the direction that Lot chose to go, and look where Lot ended up, in captivity, almost dead, and it was because of Uncle Abram that Lot was saved. Do you have a lot in your life? My lot in life is fill in the blank. Always saving that guy. Sick of it. Don't know if I'm coming to his rescue again. I understand. And here's Melchizedek bearing bread and wine, two things that represent the new covenant and the ultimate priest king, Jesus. He, through Melchizedek, is interceding for Abram, and his current ministry is to intercede for you. In fact, the Bible teaches that day and night, the king of Sodom, in quotes, accuses you before the Father. You know that? Revelation 12, I think it's verse 10, says the accuser of the brethren accuses you day and night before the throne, but you have an advocate, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, whoever lives to intercede for you. This is the beauty of the new covenant. And this prepares us for the unconditional covenant in Genesis 15 when Abram will be, will be uh, that man that's saved by God's grace. And you can read more on this in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 about mysterious Melchizedek. That message, by the way, is up on the website if you want to know more. But let's just, we're going to lead into a time of communion right now. And I thought it was really appropriate that we come to the table of the Lord tonight and we think about the elements of bread and wine. They are, they are simply symbols of a new covenant that's already been paid for. The matzah represents the uh, unblemished lamb. He was without sin. The juice represents his blood shed for the remission of the sins of many, for our sins. And if you know him tonight, when you come to the table, just grateful, amen? Grateful that he's blessed us so much. Grateful that he, he intercedes for us before the Father. Grateful that his intercession took him to a cross and a resurrection. And right now, you and I can commune with him and find our strength for the rest of the week ahead and the things that we face seemingly every hour of every day. He's there for you. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but way back in the day, uh, someone was supposed to appear before a queen and she was like, you know, he, his life was in jeopardy and they said, are you afraid to appear before this queen? And he said, why would I be afraid to appear before a queen? I just spent four hours with the king of the universe. I'm not afraid of her. And I think when we spend more time with our Melchizedek in quotes, our king of righteousness and king of peace, we'll have more peace, 
more joy. We'll know he is our righteousness. We're saved by grace. He's imputed his righteousness to us and we'll have joy and life and peace. Father, thank you for the folks that are here tonight. As we come to your table now, may you bless this time of communion around bread and wine. May we remember all, Jesus, that you have done and do for us now. May we be true worshipers like Abram. May we set up our altars and remember how good our God is. And may that help us to resist the temptations that do come our way. Make us stronger as your people. If you're here tonight and you've not met Jesus with your head and heart bowed, just ask him into your life. Say, Lord, save me. I can't do it on my own. Lord, I've been losing the battle. Pray it out loud if it's you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. Please save me, Lord. Maybe you need to rededicate your life tonight. Maybe you've been losing the battle. Maybe you're poured out and depressed. There's no joy in your life. There's no resistance. And you need a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. We're gonna all come forward in a moment. And as we do, I pray that the Lord will meet you there. But make sure that you've done some business with him tonight. And for all of us, Lord, who are believers, as we seek your face and try to get a little closer in these moments, may you touch us back. May you be glorified in our life, most high God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So during the song, we're gonna ask you to come from the back to the front. Just come down the center aisles and go, go back down the outside aisles, if you would. From the back rows first, and then just row by row. Take your elements, and then I'm just gonna ask you to meditate a little bit on what's been spoken, God's word, his face, and then just take the elements when you're ready, okay? And then we'll, when the song's over, we'll do a closing prayer, okay? Let's start coming. <laughs>